0: Hello welcome again to Sport Unlocked with me Rob Harris from Sky News Martin Ziegler from the Times and Tariq Panja from the New York Times and a particular hello to all our many listeners in Russia where we're number 31 this week in the uh, sports pod chart there. We привет.
1: Hello everyone in Russia. That's strange isn't it? Um we're not particularly uh, we we are pretty critical of Russia usually in this uh, this podcast but maybe that's why we're so popular.
0: Everyone keen so discover the facts, discover all the information behind sports news. Obviously, we've covered a lot of Russian doping in the past. And maybe this is something I was, caught my eye this week. This would intrigue the Russians. An Australian is proposing an enhanced Games as an Olympics where actually anyone can take drugs. The Russians possibly
2: would have a head start on that, given the uh, recent state-backed doping programme. Um so number 1 in the constructors championship if you if you if you if you do that you might have a similar style to the formula 1 where you have the uh, the athletes going for number 1 and then the uh, i guess in this case the pharmaceutical companies going for the constructors championship um it's been said before actually although this is all never going to happen that just let 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 them go and then see how <laughs> See how fast people could run, see how far people can throw things, and how high they can jump. Martin, what what is this? It was in your paper, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Matt Lawton did a story on it. So a guy called Aaron D'Souza, who's this entrepreneur, self styled, and he's uh, he's got these plans for the enhanced games um, where doping is encouraged, and he claims that at least one British Olympian from Tokyo has said they're interested, but. Is anyone really going to stick their head about the parapet, any sort of serious athlete and say, oh, yeah, I want to take part? I mean, you can see some sort of bodybuilder who's who may be sort of openly taking steroids might put themselves forward, but, I mean, I can't. Can you see it?
0: Well, well, three athletes actually have named themselves. They're actually named in the Guardian, although one had actually previously been involved in a doping ban where they denied complicity. And uh, I think one of them called themselves an ally of the games, implying they wouldn't take anything performance-enhancing, but they would actually um, still back the existence of these games. And some of the language is quite interesting. They say, not clean athletes, but natural athletes, if you've uh, not taken any performance-enhancing substances.
2: Oh, Martin, to answer your question, it probably depends how much someone's willing to pay you. We've seen in sport. People doing all sorts of things depending on on how much someone's willing to pay for it and that said, with something like this, can you imagine companies and sponsors backing anything like this i can't maybe broadcasts probably wouldn't so unless there's big money behind it i can't see I can't see this really um really taking off um but you never know some there might be some billionaire somewhere who would want to put put his put his name and money behind this we've seen billionaires behave strangely. Uh, in recent times and, and I suppose if there's a payday a check at the end of the day there's always someone willing to take it.
1: Yeah I suppose all you can say about the three people is I've certainly never heard of them before so it's only the highest profile athletes.
0: D'Souza certainly knows how to gain publicity though it's been a global headline just by speaking out about this tapping into a bit of the news agenda.
1: Yeah absolutely uh, I thought it was Ben Bloom in the Guardian that said uh, he's got a He's got the sort of CV that LinkedIn is, is is designed for. So, you know, he calls himself an entrepreneur, Oxford-educated lawyer and uh, self-publicist. So, yes, absolutely.
0: Maybe it's had more coverage than the European Games, an actual event in the last week or so. Good I part. couldn't tell you that was on. How, how's that been going, Rob? Uh, the only thing I really noticed was the fact Paddle's in it, the first major championship global championship like that multi-sport event that paddle feature Ooh. do you buy do you
2: buy your way into the european games as well or is that um like a regular process
1: the european games is, is, is a uh, proper sports event um it's, some of our colleagues are actually covering it it's in krakow isn't it um but you're right it is not getting much coverage at all in the in the media
0: something that's had a bit of coverage something we've covered in the past manchester city um this intriguing documentary suddenly emerged with some fresh allegations. Although how fresh are the allegations against Manchester City? What have we actually learned in this? Of course, City themselves do deny wrongdoing in the Premier League case where they face more than 100 charges.
1: Yes. So this documentary, um, uh, which has gone on YouTube, um, managed to get hold of the UEFA Judicatory Committee judgment um when they banned Manchester City for two years that's never been published by you before uh I've also seen a copy of it um written a story about it I think there is some very intriguing stuff in there which has not come out before detail which is um actually quite important for the charges that were time barred by the court of arbitration for sports so something like 30 million pounds and two payments made um by a guy named in the in the report um, by Manchester City's lawyers as Jabba Mohammed, a, a broker who provides financial services to companies in the in the Middle East, he paid thirty million pounds of money that should have come from Etisalat. Um, why he paid it, there's no explanation. Um, Manchester City's argument is that Etisalat repaid it to the Abu Dhabi United Group, which owns Manchester City three years later which I mean how does that happen with any sponsors that the whole thing is a bit strange um, and not surprisingly you might think um, UEFA did not the adjudicatory committee did not agree with that and um, said it was disguised equity funding and posed a two-year ban so the expectation is this will also be part of the Premier League 115 charges
2: yeah Martinetti is a serious company there in the Gulf as well it's big telecoms company the idea like uh that you need to re route money through um jabba Mohammed or whoever whoever this may be a middleman brokering these things these are serious businesses with serious um probably um you know accounting systems it's just a bit weird and i guess more more um confusion and more fog over what actually took place uh with manchester city's funding over the years I and mean, we're just still waiting for the
0: Premier League to to unravel all of this, aren't we? And of course, why all this matters? Because of the f- implementation of financial fair play, Manchester City perhaps not enjoying some of the soar away success now, accused of trying to inflate their revenue so they could actually build up that squad, something, of course, they denied doing by any foul means.
1: Yeah, Manchester City now, the richest club in the world, um, overtaken... Real Madrid, they're number one in the Deloitte Money League from last season. They will be almost certainly, as, again, for this season, just gone past because they've won the treble. Probably going to be more than £700 million in, in revenues, which will be a, a record. So, um, you know, I suppose the, the argument is they broke the rules to build up that squad, and that's why that's such it's such a big issue if that, if that is proven. Um
0: Manchester City fans will probably to that cast press release back from July 2020 when their Champions League ban was overturned, and the very clear favourable headline on the press release: Manchester City FC did not disguise equity funding or sponsorship contributions, but did fail to cooperate with the UEFA authorities. It continued.
2: Yeah, and with the, and right. with Premier Leagues as well, right? And that's one of the charges with the Premier Leagues is that they failed to to cooperate. Martin, you said they're going to be the richest team in the world. That. That That is because of, of, of what? There's big broadcast revenues from um, winning the Champions League, I guess, and the Premier League. But of course, that enormous commercial income, they get sponsorship income. Uh, and not to lay the point, the weird thing with Man City has always been with the commercial, which they're, they're at top levels compared to some of the other teams, is if you talk to experts in the field, they are not among the most popular football teams in the world. So it's incredible that they're able to to generate all this additional revenue without those eyeballs that real madrid uh, for example get or even manchester united in terms of their global appeal for 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 um
0: for sponsors he says tv and ticket sales will mean the champions league victory is worth 113 million pounds so you know a lot of detail there
1: well they probably um were quite keen for those that figures to come out at the time they, in the knowledge that this this uh, new ffp revelations were going to come out but um
0: although also in the week that manchester united released their own financial projections
1: yes exactly because so i think manchester united have upped their financial projections so they think they're going to reach up to 600 um 40 million pounds which is 50 million higher than they Originally forecast, probably as a result of getting qualifying for the Champions League, finishing third, getting to the final of the FA Cup. So maybe this was a sort of, yeah, they they United basically forecasting they were going to break the Premier League record, and now it looks like Manchester City are going to actually outdo them anyway. So uh, yeah, that's probably timing around that as well.
2: Mike Keegan, you mentioned that he's been quite busy. With uh, all things in Manchester, he's been writing quite a lot about those um, various deadlines for the Manchester United bids with um, that potential sale. Um, That's just dragged on all summer as well. That that Manchester United number as well, Martin, you just mentioned with this record revenue for Manchester United too. Just no sign of any white smoke with, with the United sale yet.
1: No, there's so many rumours around, aren't there? I mean, there's rumours this week are the Glazers considering not selling at all now or they get a, they're, sort of, they're more likely to go down the their minority stake investment. But no wonder Man United fans are absolutely sort of biting their fingernails to bits because they uh, I'm sure they're really frustrated because I think almost as frustrated as the poor journalists who have to cover the story.
0: And of course, when the Glazers did say effectively the club was going to be put up for sale, it was just exploring different strategic investment options, wasn't it? So they never actually guaranteed there would be a sale back in November. But I don't think we expected to be this far down the line. They have been doing transfer business, though, wrapping up a deal for Chelsea's Mason Mount. And actually, we've seen it unusually busy this June, haven't we, for football transfers? Is it because there's no men's tournament? Is it because of the end of the financial year?
1: I think the end of the financial year is really important. Um, I think, for example, Chelsea have made big losses, spent a lot of money over the last three years. They really needed to get a lot of sales done by June the 30th because otherwise it goes into the next financial year. So for FFP or Premier League's profit and sustainability rules, they need to... Um, claw back quite a lot of money from selling players and Mason Mount is a very good one for them because he's an academy product. There's no transfer fee which needs to be amortized. So they can bank the full fifty five million that United paying up front. And that is a big step towards complying with those rules. Now obviously they're not in Europe next season, but this season just gone past. Well you know if they get to Europe in a year, a year's time, then actually the finances for this season will be important.
0: Now, a whole feature of Chelsea's ownership under Todd clear clearly is some of those long contracts, those big signings over the last year, part of the reason why they've had to sell players like Mason Mount, as well as Mendy and Kante, etc., to Saudi Arabia. But these eight year amortized contracts, they won't be able to happen in future, will they? Because we've had the Decision from UEFA from the executive committee confirming something you reported uh, Martin earlier that they'll be limited to five year contracts of players now. Clubs,
1: yeah, so you can still have eight year contracts if you want, but in terms of spreading the cost of the transfer over the length of the contract, there will be a maximum of five years. So, um, they won't be backdated for um, people like Fernandez, who's had his uh, his contract um, signed already before this eight and a half years. but. Um, it will happen in future. And I think it, it, it's probably quite a good thing because I, I think if you get tempted into offering these really, really long contracts, it could be bad news for clubs and they could be left with players that they don't want and um, they're very costly, nobody wants to buy them. You It can actually rebound quite badly on you. So I think it's actually quite a protective measure for clubs as well.
2: It's also an effort to, to equalise... Uh, contractual arrangements across the FFP um, system isn't it because you're, you're analyzing uh, teams and clubs all across Europe and some places you're not you're not able to do that. The other thing they're trying to equalize I understand are the uh, tax obligations from France, for example, the taxes clubs have to pay on player wages are much higher than anywhere else, meaning French clubs costs are much higher so they're trying to find a way. To, to balance that out. Otherwise, um, the French clubs have long been arguing that it's it's unfair that like they're measured in a different way. Um, something that UEFA is now looking at with FFP. It just seems a constant um, um, <laughs> effort to try and get FFP in order for the last couple of years. We had the pandemic. We've got this stuff now. It's quite hard to understand and and see what FFP actually looks like sometimes. Um, Martin, do, do, do you think there is a an easy way of of working out what the cost numbers are these days it used to be a lot easier that's when the clubs were able to get away with it as well but this new thing i can't get my head around it do you, do you think it's quite easy to to analyse
1: no it's not and i think the um you're right the thing about the, the the different tax regimes is a important factor because yeah you can say if you're in uh, in france um, compared to a, a team in Switzerland, then there's, there's massive differences.
0: Something else decided by UEFA, the most logical, inevitable decision. That very long, clunky title, the Europa Conference League, is being shortened to just the Conference League. And even on social media, they're struggling to get the account names and for it to fit in.
1: I think they should have made it even longer. You, know? you could have the UEFA <coughs> UEFA Europa Conference Premier League. That would have been good.
0: Any name suggestions, bring them in. Something else, sir, caught your eye, I think, Tarek in particular. How are fans getting more involved at UEFA?
2: Yeah, there was a press release from UEFA this week announcing that Fans Europe, the kind of pan-European fans body, is being, I guess, co-opted or brought in to the UEFA decision-making process in the sense it's going to be added to various committees so they'll be in the room and um, if there is a vote taken within these committees they'll get one one vote um still not sure what to make of it is this more a a public relations exercise getting the fans in obviously there's been a lot of angst among fans over the um, various snafus and i would say scandals in terms of the treatment of fans at various european finals Obviously, Paris in the Champions League final the year before last, um, this this year for Manchester City fans in in, in Istanbul and other other incidents. Uh, I'm not quite sure what to make of it, guys. What, what what's your impression?
1: I went to the um, annual congress or biannual congress of the Football Supporters Association and Football Supporters Europe, which was in Manchester uh, at the weekend. Um, People were actually the fans' representatives. They, they all thought this was a a good thing. I didn't. I don't think. I think they felt frustrated that they hadn't got a voice and they hadn't got any input. So um I, I don't think you know you can you can see some people saying is this sort of a publicity stunt, but I think they they were quite positive about it.
0: I mean, you can see why fans do benefit from being part of the decision-making process in a way. So they're excluded in so many parts. You know, we've talked the past about FIFA seeming to have no engagement with fans. The only sort of line is at what point do you become almost too close that you might perhaps be deterred from the direct criticism and forceful criticism of the governing body?
2: Yeah, does it stymie your, your, the critical voice? Of course, the other point to make is Fans Europe does take funding from UEFA directly as well. Um, and then it's that whether it has any any of those relationships whether they have a, a chilling effect on what you can say about the organisation because it's been important that fans' voice certainly for for UEFA Alexander Sheffern, um has thanked the fans hasn't he for for stopping Super League for example particularly in England you you saw those fans um, popping up outside and even inside stadiums and of the, of the six Premier League clubs that that had initially signed up Um, I guess once you're in do you have you obviously have that voice it's important to have it said but are you able to do
0: the the critical part as well time will tell well we also have the FAIR network that conduct investigations into discrimination at matches they receive funding don't they from UEFA but you know certainly we've had PR Power the executive director from FAIR on this part several times and he will speak out won't he
1: he certainly will, um, and also, I mean, football supporters. Europe had a representative on the the commission, which looked into what happened in Paris and produced a really, really damning report about UEFA. So, um, there's certainly no evidence there that they're being sort of having to sort of keep their mouth shut because of the funding. So, but I think you have to be a strong personality to make sure that that doesn't happen. And you know, we as with Piara, he's very much. Um, you know he's not he's not going to be kowtowed into not saying anything just because that's he's worried about the funding.
2: And it's not just on on issues related to stadiums that the, that these guys are on, which is I think is good. I think it's broader football issues, uh, financial stability regulations. I think they'll get a seat in the table for that for that as well. All sorts of other all sorts of other issues. So they'll they have a, a seat in the room. what would be interesting to know is. Whether they can then leave those rooms, those private rooms that these discussions take place in and talk to the fans that they're representing about what they're hearing and what what's going to happen. Or whether once you're in the room, you 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 can't really share all
0: of that information. This is similar so we see at some football clubs where they have fan advisory boards and generally what happens is they release some almost agreed minutes, don't they, every so often. Think we get it from, you know, from Manchester United, from Tottenham they're not necessarily relaying every bit. Although aren't Chelsea, aren't as part of the agreed changes there in the last year, isn't fan representation on the board or one of the shadow boards or something?
1: I think they're quite, football clubs are looking to have non-voting fan members who can attend board meetings. Um, But I I think you probably have to sign confidentiality agreements when you go on those because there'll be commercially sensitive information. So I, I think that's probably a, a tricky
0: one. Well, moving away from the world of football, something I've reported on heavily this week is the English cricket scandal, a investigation report exposing racism, sexism, elitism right across the game. And it really does expose years of issues in English cricket, particularly because there was a racism report conducted by the England Wales Cricket Board in 1999 and seemingly nothing much was acted on that. So here we are now with... So many recommendations to change to improve diversity, include pay for female cricketers to prevent that sort of preferential pathway into professional cricket through private schools in particular. And we have had an apology from the ECB.
1: Yeah, I think they probably had to apologise. That was one of the recommendations that from, from the report that they should do so, um, make a public apology i mean i think Jonathan lou in the guardian put it you know <laughs> you know kill surprise basically uh, who knew cricket was riven by racism sexism and elitism because you know was it ever thus and I, it is but it is a it is a a big issue is why for you know at junior level so many um for example children from asian communities take part in cricket but they don't make the breakthrough into the professional game that's a, that is a a big issue that the ECB has to tackle um, and the i think the issue obviously for years and years women's cricket was barely touched upon now things are changing um, oh, and they have changed but there's a lot of work to be done
2: i see, cause i remember being at a briefing held at lords maybe a decade ago if not about that anyway by um the person who was the chief executive of, of the ecb at the time former marketing guy from img i forget his name and um it was this talking about tapping into those communities and getting players from those communities into the professional game and it, it just seems to be stuck even after you know all of that time all those all those words and. Plans they don't seem to materialise now. This damning report comes out. Maybe you can see why um, the environment just isn't conducive to, to people from minorities wanting to pursue this. It feels, in some ways, a hostile environment. Why would you? Why would you put yourself through that? Um, funny aside. Um, obviously, it's the Lord's test in um, St John's Wood where <laughs> Lord Stadium, but also it's the Central Mosque um and it was Eid al-Adha this week so you see the, the 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 people coming off the tube station at at St John's Wood station and turning left both groups turning left towards Lords and uh, very differing hues in 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 the in the crowds going in different directions if you see that line for lords and it is you know sorry to use this phrase very pale male and stale still that uh, queuing up going to the Lords cricket ground to watch England playing the Ashes and then obviously the crowd going towards the mosque. I think even that, the, the getting people to come and watch and be in the stadium, be, feeling part of being uh, part of the crowd will be one of those um, signs of change. I um, must say, I didn't really
0: see that at Lourdes this week. No, I, didn't know. I was there at Lords actually, particularly when Just Stop Oil stopped play as well with their protest. And you do get a sense of that sort of... Crowd lacking diversity, of course, issues in the press box as well, without the diversity there. And if we look at this report, there's just so much detail about why people might be deterred from pursuing a career in the game, obviously around alcohol, the prevalence of alcohol, the laddish culture is highlighted. We saw, I think after the first test, Australia's players celebrating with beer on the pitch. Now, English cricket has largely removed things like champagne celebrations, as we've seen in football as well, small steps in terms of just largely ensuring that inclusive environment. So it's not like, oh, everyone has say the alcohol apart from these few players and they have to be very separate. And, you know, in references, I think taunts over things like bacon as well, highlighted in some of the case studies in the ECB commission report too.
1: Yeah, I think laddish culture is is one which has been part of cricket for, for years and if you look all the, the Yorkshire stuff, I think that one of the things that came out for me is the, is the sort of partying that went up, went on involving the players. And there was definitely a sort of pressure on, on people to take part in, in sort of quite big drinking sessions, basically, um, uh, and go out night clubbing and that sort of thing. And it's, it doesn't seem very professional, does it? Maybe you don't have to be as quite as fit to play cricket. I mean, obviously... But, I mean, they are, but maybe there's not the sort of the need to avoid that sort of um, indulging in, in in drinking and in partying because I don't I don't think if you're a professional footballer your body would would take it.
2: No, some of the transition from young athletes into professional cricket comes through the university system as well, doesn't it? And I I, I dare say um, those the the high level teams at british universities will also engage in some of this culture as well and i I would i would like to i'd be interested to see whether what the diversity level is at the top tier of of british university cricket as well because i I wonder if it has the same kind of blockages because of that culture
1: yeah we should get into the whole university drunken culture at sports uh, in 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 depth because uh, i've got some things to say about that but uh, um no, I think you're right, and I thought that the whole sort of the class divide is also interesting, because um, cricket and state schools, that has just gone through the floor um, in terms of the number of schools that are playing it, and I think that is that has got to be the biggest thing that the ECB has to tackle. I think um, in terms of yeah, but is that, that is that divide? a playing
2: fields issue, Martin? Is that a playing fields issue? I mean, uh, you know, a lot of lot of um, comprehensive schools. Uh, had their playing fields taken away and moved for you know other development post post Thatcher, I don't know how many how many um, comprehensive schools have access to cricket. You need you need a, you need a, a field, don't you?
1: Yeah, the cost as well because you know maintaining a pitch it's not like just a football pitch, or you know, some schools might now have artificial pitches. You need, to, you know, the cost and time of like having a proper cricket pitch is it's it's not easy. So, you know, schools need to give, be given access to facilities that aren't aren't theirs, perhaps.
0: And the report particularly also highlights the decline in the number of black players playing cricket too.
1: Because think back into the the eighties and West Indies were all conquering, and it, a lot of um, people who came from. Caribbean families and into into the UK um, working on cricket, but um, other sports have now taken um, precedence and they're much more popular, football, basketball, and cricket um, doesn't seem to be an important part for that particular part of Britain.
0: Yeah, and as you sort of look more wide as well, you know, we mentioned that elitism, that classism, what it actually relates to is taunting over wealth and actually superiority in the class system which might seem sort of slightly curious to some people in countries listening where it's the very hierarchical British society I suppose other countries do but is this something we think actually isn't unique to English cricket English sport actually other countries as well will will have this sort of elitism because there will be private schools there will be whatever sport in that particular country where you will get that preferential path won't you
1: yeah probably i mean the other thing is like the private schools so it's not like that everyone who in the england cricket team for example is sort of necessarily your typical private school boy for example joe root um went to a comprehensive school till he was 16 then he got given a scholarship by a um, I can't remember what school it was but um so for he you know he said he's put down as having been a, a product of a private school because I think he went for the sixth form on a on a free scholarship because they just wanted him to play for their cricket team so it's um it, i think it's not quite as simple as just looking at the class divide like that so I think there are nuances to it
2: well those those nuances probably also to do with access to the facilities we kind of go around in a circle here as well isn't there because the private schools will have those fields uh, and you look at rob wider sports as well you there's there's an obvious class bent to certain olympic sports for example you're not going to get many rowers for example who've come from a comprehensive school um, and into into rowing clubs and, and certain olympic sports show jumping etc it's about access and it's about um It's about wealth as well in many cases. Um, Clearly, cricket seems to have fallen into, or is increasingly, uh, has headed in that
0: direction. I suppose schools ultimately have to have a choice which sports programmes do they have, particularly if it's not some vast school with masses of resources that you have to pick and choose, don't you?
1: Yeah, you do. I mean, just going back to thinking what cricket was like in in English cricket in the past. So, you actually had sort of gentleman players and amateur players at one point, didn't you? So, I mean, in England, I think it, even up to the nineteen fifties, if it, on the team sheets or the official sheets that the uh, that the, would be put out, if you if you were an amateur player and a gentleman, you'd have your initials uh, before your name, and then if you were a, a sort of professional. <laughs> Sort of working class you just have your surname without your initials
0: well M. Ziegler T. Panger I'd just Panic. be Panger I think <laughs> 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 well do you like so many in Russia if you hit subscribe then we land in your feeds automatically you can also rate, review and hit subscribe But and you can always message us at Spot and Lots on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram but good to chat guys thank you everyone and goodbye